Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Nathan Bingaman. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and it is my privilege to give uh, this sermon as we're wrapping up the 21 days of prayer. It's always a great privilege, opportunity for me to get up here and minister from the Word, um, minister in the Word with you all, and consider uh, consider our God that we worship and consider the things that we do to, to follow Jesus, to, to be in fellowship with God. My idea for this sermon was to sort of justify why, why did we do the names of Jesus in, in the devotional for the 21 days of prayer. Um, part of that is because it's, it's nice to have 21 things to do for a devotional. Um, but there are other really important reasons for that. And so I thought I was just going to give us a sermon on sort of um, the theology of the names of Jesus, the names of God. And we will, we'll do that. But as I was studying, I think the Lord sort of showed me something here in the scriptures um, that contextualizes or sort of shows uh, the importance of the names of the Lord and how we're supposed to relate to God through that name, through the name. Um, so this is kind of fun, but it's a little bit different for me. Usually I do an exegetical sermon verse by verse through some passage, um, but today is a little bit what, I, what I'm trying to call biblical theology. You can, you can tell me at the end of the sermon if it ends up being biblical theology, but we're going to trace something from Genesis to Revelation uh, that's going on in the scriptures, and I think it's something that the Lord is trying to show us as a way to relate to him even as his people. We'll see that later. So there's sort of a message or kind of a theme, uh, even a motif, you might say, that's sort of dropped in there in the, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, as a way to relate to God, how we're supposed to relate to God, and to continue in relationship with God. Um, so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at uh, the importance of the names of Jesus. The title of my sermon is The Three Names God Gives Jesus. Okay, so hopefully that grabs your interest. Um, that was sort of my original idea. And then I'm also going to give that contextualization of calling on the name of the Lord. Um, that's sort of that theme, that biblical theology theme that I, I hope to just kind of introduce all of these things we could really think a lot more about. I I kind of hesitate to do a sermon like this because really I'm sort of putting like precious stones, just kind of lining them all up. And usually my sermon is just kind of looking at one of them. But all of these things that I mentioned or the passages that I mentioned, we could go a lot deeper into. But I think it's also good to kind of zoom back, zoom out, and look at the scriptures in this way and kind of see what's happening. Genesis to Revelation of of what the Lord might be showing us. As a way to understand when we then go deeper into a passage, we have that, that understanding. We kind of see the forest, and then we go look at a tree, right? There's that phrase, that person can't see the forest for the trees. So I'm backing up. I want to see the forest for just a sermon, for just this, this moment. And then hopefully that guides us into back into the scripture or back into what God would have us do. And this calling on the name of the Lord that we see in scripture makes it much easier for us to apply the names of, of God, the names of Jesus, which are these high and holy things, into our daily life, I think. Um, so kind of doing both of those things here with uh, tracing this, th- this theme, tracing this, this phrase. And one of the major meanings of the sermon, or one of the things I think I hope to express in the sermon, is 
where does prayer fit in our lives? By looking at this calling on the name of the Lord and understanding it a little bit better, I think we'll see that in the modern day, it's a little bit of a struggle to understand how to think about prayer and how do, how do we fit it into our lives. I struggle with this. Um, so uh, this sermon was really a, a learning experience for me, another way to think of how needful, how relevant prayer is, how necessary and vital it is to relating to God, and how often it should be happening, actually. I don't know about you, but I was sort of raised, even as a, a Christian, my, my style of Christianity or my culture of Christianity, to not do rules and not do ritual. You know, those are not cool anymore, okay? We're not supposed to do rules and rituals. We're supposed to be free and expressive and, and authentic and honest and intimate with God, which is good. Those are good things, all right? But I think I've sort of thrown out some good things that would really help me. Okay, I got the free and, and the authentic part down. Maybe now I need to come back to some sort of habit, maybe we can call it instead of ritual, um, some sort of consistency, some sort of uh, regularity in my walk with God and also my relationship to God. So I'm really trying to do that, and I hope that uh, we can do that together today. We're always talking about, from the, from the pulpit, we're always saying that we need to realize our dependence on God. Why we pray is to acknowledge our dependence on God, and that's really at the heart of what we'll see today in the scriptures. So, before I get into that, let me pray. Mighty God, thank you for this opportunity to look into your scriptures, to look into your word, um, where you speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with me, that I might proclaim the truth. I pray that you would be with us, that we might understand the truth, and that you would empower us to live the truth, and live by the truth. In your name we pray, amen. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is this idea, um, but really it was a behavior. It was something that people did in the Old Testament called calling upon the name of the Lord. And as with all of the things I'm going to mention, you've maybe heard about this or you read a passage and you'll see it, um, but I hope by kind of stringing all these things together and kind of putting them together, it will add more meaning or significance to something like this phrase that you see everywhere in the Old Testament, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, the earliest instance of this phrase is actually in Genesis 4, Genesis 4.26, and it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, this phrase, this thing is mentioned in chapter 4, right at the, the tail end of chapter 4. It's like the last verse of chapter 4. After Genesis 3, which was the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of mankind. And so this phrase is very, very, very important to how people related to God. In fact, it's the earliest, besides the dialogue and, and, and interaction that God has with Adam and Eve, it's sort of the earliest characterization of people who um, relate to God. Okay, nowadays, uh, as Christians, we call ourselves believers, we're followers, um, those kind of things. In Genesis 4, uh, what characterized those who knew God and who related to him in, in the vital way um, that, we, that we would characterize as believers or followers, they were called those who called on the name of the Lord. 
And I think this sort of shows, I, I try to explain, I, I get to teach world religions um, at, in the high school, and I've tried to understand what is the definition of religion, right? What does that mean? And I think uh, nowadays when we say religion, we sort of mean uh, this mass movement of people. Or we say religion is the system of uh, teaching and conducting your life. And those things are true. But way, way, way back in the day, way back in Abraham's day, um, religion wasn't so sophisticated for most people as what we think of today. Maybe for a priest um, or someone high up in a religion, they had rituals and a system of living and um, a whole uh, set of beliefs that kind of worked together to explain everything. But the normal person, the normal ancient person, if I can make a really broad generalization, they related to this or that God um, occasionally, on occasion, when they needed something, I think. I think it's safe to say. When you needed to have a good harvest, you might make a sacrifice or you might go to a temple um, or somehow connect with a God that would help bless your harvest, Um, so on and so forth with the different things in your life. And you would go and you would make the connection, you would do the ritual or whatever, and then you'd go back to your, your daily life and, and really hope that that would help. <laughs> you'd have to wait until harvest time to see if, if what you did was good enough or if it worked or whatever. So the religion of those kind of people, like Abraham, was very occasional, if I can say it that way. It had to do with the situation they were in or what they needed at the moment or at the time. So That's not to say they were more detached from their God or more detached from what we might call their religion. Um, In fact, it probably connected them more because they saw, you know, every day you need food and every year you need to make a harvest. So their relationship to their God had very much to do with their survival. It was a life and death matter that they connected to this or that God. Um, And so we see in Genesis 4 one of the gods that people could connect with and call on the name of was the Lord. Later on in Genesis, we see uh, sort of the paradigmatic believer, the the believer who is the example for all believers, Abraham, connecting to the Lord in this way. But before I go into too much about Abraham, I wanted to give a counterexample about the significance of the name of the Lord. Um, It was interesting as I was sort of preparing this sermon to hear different things crop up in the previous week's sermons um, that are relevant to to what we're talking about here. And I think in order to sort of put in relief or or contrast the importance and significance of the name of the Lord, we have to talk about the way that um, name is used in the Old Testament a little bit as a motif that has like a good and a bad side to it. So in Genesis 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, And as James preached about, uh, there was sort of this bad example of people getting together and trying to do things in their own power. Um, Instead of being satisfied with what God was giving, um, instead of looking to God to give them something, they were going to sort of get it for themselves. And they say, what they say in, in Genesis 11 is, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So that helps us understand what name means in the Old Testament, 
but as sort of a bad example, right? An evil example. Let us make a name for ourselves. And you're not supposed to do that. That's a bad thing. Don't do that, okay? That is uh, maybe another way that we can understand sin, okay? Sin can be defined in a lot of different ways. We can kind of do a legal context, or it's about guilt, or it's about shame, or it's about these other things. But part of sin, what's wrong with sin, is you, a creature of God, trying to make a name for yourself. And that's what I uh, sort of helped me title my sermon, The Three Names God Gives Jesus. Because there's something about Jesus that's uh, humble, that's obedient. Um, He doesn't just... Uh, try to make a name for himself. And that's what we saw with the Philippians passage. Jesus is held up as this model of of behavior and conduct um, because he isn't doing this Tower of Babel stuff. And so Tower of Babel, also at the beginning of Genesis, anything that's in Genesis, especially the beginning of Genesis, is supposed to set an example for everything that follows later and help you understand what follows later. Um, And so we're given these things early on in in Genesis to help us understand what's going on later. So, Genesis 12, we have God show up, and what does he say to Abraham? His name was Abram at the time. Actually, there's a very important thing that happens where God sort of gives Abram the name Abraham. Um, But we can't go too much into that, but names are significant in that sense because God shows up and he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And that's what Pastor James preached about, right? We're blessed to be a blessing. And so there, if you're paying attention to the scope of, of the Bible and the story that's being told in the beginning of Genesis, you would read Genesis 11 and you would see these people saying, let's make a name for ourselves. And then you'd read Genesis 12, and God shows up out of nowhere to Abram and says, I will make your name great. Okay? Bad example. Good example. What's not supposed to happen? What is supposed to happen? And so this is one way that God communicates with us and is trying to get us to understand what he's doing. Okay? So... God is very consistent in what he says. He's setting a pattern, and if we can zoom out a little bit and kind of see what's going on in that story, that's why it's great to read a book at a time. If you've never done that before, um, read a book of the Bible, just start to finish all the way through, like it's a novel or something like that. And if you do that once or maybe multiple times, you'll start to kind of pick up on some of these patterns. Oh, wait, wait a second. In that chapter, they weren't supposed to make a name for themselves. In this chapter... God shows up and says, I will make your name great. So there's, there's sort of a, a lesson going on. There's sort of a point-counterpoint going on. And so I thought that I, even as I was just listening to the sermons, I was like, oh, wait a second. What, you know, I, what I just told you about, I was learning as I was thinking about the significance of the name in the Old Testament. And I had all these grand ideas. And then just listening to the sermon, I was like, wait a second. That's, that's what's going on. So looking for the, the meaning and that significance of the name in the Old Testament or this, this phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, helped me understand the story of the Bible and what was going on there. In Genesis 12, we see um, Abraham is, is sort of going on. His, he's been given this promise, been given this covenant, and now he has to like 
live his life in light and sort of burden of this promise, like how is God going to do that? Is God really going to do that for me? Um, was that a real thing that happened or did I just dream it? Um, but it says in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 13, um, Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. It says he went to Bethel and he was in this area and he calls on the name of the Lord. So Abram was someone who was one of these people, these callers on the name of the Lord, um, what that meant. And so instead of calling on the name of another God or trying to make his own name great, when he needed things in life, when he was reaching out for uh, a higher power, he called on the name of the Lord. And that helps us explain a little bit about why maybe God had this relationship with him and he can show up and say, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to other people. And what happens, I think, in calling upon the name of the Lord is this, this old-fashioned religious term called invocation. Okay, you may have heard that before. If you go to a highly liturgical church, they'll, they'll do an invocation at the beginning of the service. And that's just somewhere where you mention the Lord's name. Maybe you even invite the Lord to, to be with you and to have fellowship with you. And that's very important to do, to, to make mention of why are we gathered here? We, we make mention of the name of the Lord. Mentioning his name and sort of calling on his name explains why we're, why we're here. What are, what are we doing here? You know, Is this a social club? Is this a rock concert? No, it's a gathering of people who call on the name of the Lord. And so we see Abraham sort of doing it, this in sort of a, an ancient way. So I was trying to think of how, where does this kind of thing show up in, in our culture nowadays, in the modern day? And I think, to me, this, the, a parallel idea or way to illustrate what's happening when Abram calls on the name of the Lord is what happens at the end of a rock concert. Raise your hand if you've ever gone to like a rock concert in person. Remember those days? Yeah, remember way back when we used to do that? Okay. What happens at the end of a rock concert? You know, the headliner just got done doing their set whatever, and they end with a big bang, and the lights kind of go dim, and somehow they disappear off the stage, what happens? Encore. Very good. So there's this idea of encore, right? You start chanting the name of the band, or one more song, one more song, or whoever it, whoever it is, uh, you chant their name. Does that mean that you're commanding them to do something? No, it's 50-50. If you ask for an encore, they may or may not do it, Right? When Abram calls on the name of the Lord, he's not doing some magical ritual. He's not uh, like pulling some cord of obligation on the Lord. He's calling on the name of the Lord and saying, I'm at your mercy. I need help. I want your strength. I really hope that you, you show up. I really hope that you bless me. But I don't know. I don't know. So calling on the name of the Lord, I think, is a very humble thing. It's a very... Uh, dependent thing to do. It shows, it, it displays some dependence on whom you're invoking, whom you're calling upon. Um, kind of like an encore. Okay, not that Abraham was over there like, one more song, one more song. To him, it was much more life and death. It was much more serious for him. Um, that was how he was going to live. It's how he was going to survive. And that example of faith is still an example of faith for us today. Abraham is, is the man of faith. He's, he's the father of faith. Now, moving on uh, to this uh, importance of, of the name, the, the way that we see sort of this, this name and this calling of the name of the Lord um, develop 
um, is much later on when there is the Davidic covenant to David. Um, David, he's sort of at the, the end of his, his kingdom, end of his ministry, and he says, I have this kingdom, but there's not uh, a house for the Lord. I want to build a house for the Lord. I want to build a temple. Okay? And so David sort of prays this prayer and sort of shows this desire to build a house for the Lord. But he receives a message back from the Lord. And the Lord says, do I look like I dwell in houses? Um, <laughs> he says a bunch of other things. Um, and sort of shows up to, to David and says, you're not going to make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you. I'm going to make the house of David great. And he says, I will make for you a great name. So we sort of see this response again um, of, of the Lord. Good intention from David. David had good intentions. Um, I think he wanted to honor the Lord in the, in the way that he knew how. He probably saw other temples, perhaps, had in mind other houses of other gods. Um, and so uh, that's probably good. It was good. The Lord has mercy in his response. Um, but again, we see the Lord saying, I'm going to make your name great. So Tower of Babel. God blesses Abraham and says, I will make your name great. David, maybe he, he, he wants to make a house of the Lord, and that's too much like a Tower of Babel. It might turn into David's temple instead of the temple of the Lord. Um, I don't know what's going on there. I think there's a whole lot going on there. Um, but we have the Lord showing up to David, just like to Abram, and saying, I will make your name great. You don't need to make my name great. I will make your name great. Um, but it's sort of an honor and a compliment to David. Yes, that you, you were headed in the right direction. You wanted to exalt me. You wanted to honor me. That's good. But uh, in response, I'm going to honor you. So um, we see that uh, this, the, the name is very important in, in relating to, to God. Um, and I think it's very easy for us as believers to be sort of like David, um, if you're anything like me, I, I have this temptation, I think, all the time. All the time. I, I'm praying, or I'm getting um, encouraged, I'm getting edified, and I'm like, I need to do something for God. I need to make something for God. I need to, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I need to, you know, s- start a blog, or I, I need to, 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 to make a painting, or, or make something for God. And that's fine, and that's good. We need to worship God. We need to have devotion to God, and, and it results in these products and results in these things. But I think when it's not powered by God, it's not initiated by God, it's really easy for there to be sort of this, this uh, ingredient of pride to it. Oh, I could do this great thing for God. And I say that out of personal experience, personal testimony. Um, when I was raised and I was trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, um, I, I basically told my, myself that. I was like, oh, God's blessed me. God saved me. Um, I'm going to be this great person for God. I'm going to do this great ministry for God. Um, I'm going to build uh, this great testimony um, to God. With what he's, God, God has blessed me, and he sort of handed me the baton, and now it's my turn to do something amazing and do something great. That didn't turn out very well, okay? <laughs> that was the beginning of me being very, very humbled and learning how things go. Because too much of my desire to do that was about making my name great as well, um, of 
giving back to God like he gave to me. That, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> okay, it's not like God gives you a gift and, and then you give the same kind of gift back to God and you're just friends and you're just giving each other gifts. Um, that's not how it goes. What we do for God really is powered by God and initiated by God, if that makes sense. And so even in our doing and our worshiping of God and our devotion to God and our ministry for God is powered by God too, empowered by the Spirit. Um, we don't do some kind of ministry that's reciprocal to what the Lord's doing. The ministry we do is out of an overflow of what the Lord is already doing. And in fact, it's another thing that the Lord does. So I think it's, it's easy. It, it's, it's kind of hard to interpret. It's, it's kind of a, a weird, nuanced passage. Like King David, he wants to build a temple for the Lord. That's a very, very good thing. But the message back from the Lord is, is a rebuke. And he says, you're going to make me a house? You're going to make my name great? No, I'm going to make your name great. I'll make, I'll make for you a house, the house of David. Um, and that uh, covenant and that promise to David turns into this, this promise of the Messiah and um, sort of paves the way and paves the understanding of what's going to happen when Jesus shows up, when the Messiah shows up. So there's this building of the name. Um, the name is very important. We actually see this sort of phrase being used in um, Psalms, uh, Psalm 116, I'll mention here. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. So in the same way that ancient religion looked a little bit different than the way that we think about religion today, um, salvation, deliverance looked a little bit different um, than it does today. We now know, um, as we'll see, I'll mention this later in the sermon, salvation ultimately for us as New Testament believers is about salvation from our sin, salvation from death, um, almost this cosmic salvation, like salvation on a grand level. But for Old Testament believers, salvation was in the day-in, day-out troubles and experiences that might really injure or harm or even kill you. We needed salvation from uh, famine or hunger, but you also needed salvation from evil people who were out to get you, who were out to cheat you of your, of your livelihood, um, or maybe were even just murderous and, and out to get you and take your life. So in the Psalms, we see this calling on the name of the Lord um, for deliverance, um, for these very serious, these very imminent threats. And there's a whole theology that we could do from the Psalms um, calling on the name of the Lord because, uh, like Psalm 3 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I think one of the things that set the Lord apart from other gods was that he helped you, that he rescued you, that he saved you. And I don't think that's an accident the Lord sort of established this pattern of rescue, of saving, um, because he was going to help us understand what would happen with Jesus, what was happening with redemption. We needed to understand our relationship to God. Our relationship to God is one of needing rescue and being rescued. Rescued and rescuer. That's core, that's key to our relationship with the Lord. And the Lord is known as the one who delivers, which I think is, is amazing. I mean, if you're in the pantheon of gods... Um, the thing to, to be known as the, the rescuer, the savior, that's so, that's so superhero, right? I think that's why we have superheroes nowadays. This idea of like rescuing is so good and so pure and powerful. And I think that's how the Lord was known. In Psalm 50, uh, this is a passage I preached on before. Um, in Psalm 50, the Lord shows up. It's like the Lord shows up to the human race. 
the Lord comes and he's sort of meeting in his divine council and he's going to address the whole human race. And so he, there's a, a passage in Psalm 50, which is God talking to his people. And then there's sort of the, another passage where God is talking to not his people, um, not the Israelites. Um, we might call them Gentiles, okay, or something like that. When God is talking to his people, he criticizes them for the way that they sacrifice and the way that they show him devotion. Again, kind of weird, just like with King David, you would think they would get a gold star for showing devotion to the Lord, for sacrificing to the Lord. But uh, the Lord has high standards for us. The Lord wants us to relate to him in a certain way, and he wants to get rid of the evil, get rid of the pride, um, get rid of the lust that we might have um, in the wrong ways of relating to God. In the midst of that address, and he's sort of correcting his people, talking to his people, um, verse 15 of, of Psalm 50, he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And that really struck me at that, at that moment. Here we have um, this, this ancient definition of salvation, right? When do you call upon the name of the Lord um, when you need saving? It's in the day of trouble. That just means like on your bad day, on your worst day, when someone really has you, maybe in court, when, when the, the harvest wasn't good and you're about to starve, in the day of trouble, call upon me, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. I think this is so great for lots of reasons. The Lord could totally be, I will deliver you and you'll owe me later. You'll spend the rest of your life paying me back. He could say something else, right? But what he demands of his people, okay, so again, this salvation is not talking about Gentiles. It's not talking about those people outside of Israel. He's talking to his people who are already saved in this way of like being saved and set apart as a people. They need to be saved in their walk with him, in their life with him, and not try to do this thing of, of taking the baton from the Lord and say, God, you saved me from Egypt, but I got it from here. I'll take it from here. He's saying, you, you need salvation in your daily life, okay? You need my help living your daily life. Call upon me, I will deliver you, and all I ask of you is you to glorify me. When I saw that, I was like, wow, that could be, that could be in the New Testament, it could be in the Old Testament. It's so pure, it's such a, a good way to think about calling on the name of the Lord. Calling on the name of the Lord is, is what you might call an economy of prayer. It's, it's a system of, of prayer. God says, this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to survive. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. It's a way to think about not just prayer, but really our life. How do we survive? How do we get by? How do we grow and mature and flourish? Like this. God wants to help us. God wants to be the one who, who does it, who delivers us. And because he is that way, he wants us to glorify him. Now, this isn't just a selfish, sort of like arrogant, glorify me, I need to hear, I, I live on the praise of my people, okay? Which many other ancient gods and ancient religions sort of, that's how it worked. Um, I think there's an ancient create, creation myth which says the gods sort of need the sacrifices of humans. And if humans aren't sacrificing and being pious, then the gods kind of grow weak and they might fade away. Um, that's how other gods worked. This glorifying is just saying, look, my name is the one that saves. I am the God that saves. When you call upon my name, you will be saved. 
All of y'all need saving. <laughs> Every human needs deliverance. Every human has a day of trouble. So you need to glorify my name that, so that they can call on me. That's why a temple does get built. A temple does get built. Um, the Lord has Solomon, the son of David, build this temple. And the Lord says, my name shall be there for all people to pray to. And that's where we sort of see prayer and the name of the Lord come together. The sophisticated system of, of a prayer and crying out to God and asking God for everything comes together. And he says, yes, I will let you build a physical location. I'm not going to live there, but I will put my name there for you to call upon. So the temple was all about prayer as well. And Jesus says basically the same thing when he drives the, the, the money changers from the temple. He, says, he quotes this Old Testament passage which says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So the temple wasn't supposed to be just for Israel. It's supposed to be for the human race. And the message is, you need saving. I can save you. Pray to me. Call on my name. This is how you will live. This um, idea, this theology, makes its way into the New Testament. I'm just going to kind of run through this really quick. But in Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, there is use of this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. I thought that was interesting. So the first three books of the Bible after the Gospels, Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians, mention this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. Acts mentions it during Pentecost. Okay, So I think it's Peter who's talking, and, he's, and he uh, quotes this famous uh, prophetic uh, saying, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in Romans 10, it says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to those in Corinth, and um, I, I have an inclination to say that in, in the church at Corinth, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. Paul often makes sort of a, a rhetorical appeals or talks to the Jewish audience at Corinth. And then there's other places in um, 1 Corinthians where he talks to the Gentile audience. So he sort of makes, you might think, uh, in terms of religious appeal, he says, come on, you, you guys are the people of Israel. You know about um, the Jewish uh, religion and the Jewish way. And then he makes appeals based on like wisdom and reason and those kind of things to the Gentiles, probably Hellenized, Greco-Roman Gentiles in the congregation. So when he's talking to that congregation, he says, um, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's saying that prophecy is coming true. You all are calling on the name of the Lord, and it's bringing you together. Whether you're a Jew, you're calling on the name of the Lord, and you're from the people of Israel, and you have this whole understanding of who that Lord is. But now, in the New Testament, we see this prophecy fulfilled. The Gentiles are calling on the name of the Lord and are able to be in fellowship and be in a congregation, both their Lord and ours, Lord of all. So I think that's, that's really cool. Where this, this idea, this calling on the name of the Lord is mentioned in the New Testament um, and at least in these, these three books at the beginning of the New Testament, it's in the context of everyone calling on the name of the Lord. This is a, the broadest appeal that God can make. And he can make that appeal now, and, and this prophecy is being fulfilled now because 
Jesus because the gospel. Not just for Israel, not just in this religious sense, but now we have this ultimate salvation in Jesus. So, um, I wanted to point out three significant things um, about God's name. The first one is what the Lord literally means, okay? So, maybe you're like me, and, and you're, you're reading through, and it says, the name of God, the name of the Lord, there's this name, the name of, call upon my name. You're like, but what is that name, <laughs> right? Like, what name should we actually be saying? And so the Lord, he's very gracious, and he explains even to us, you know, Moses asks, um, what the, uh, when I go to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they might ask what your name is, and I don't even know your name. Now, it's not necessarily important to know the etymology of God's name, okay? But God is gracious, and he reveals himself to us, and he says, okay, okay, Moses, if they ask you that question, if they ask you that question, you can tell him this, I am that I am, right? I am sent you. And Moses is like, okay, that's a lot more than I was expecting to get. <laughs> As what you, I thought you could just say like, you know, Bob or, you know, just something. You gave me a whole like philosophical, existential, mystical puzzle, and I'm just supposed to go and tell them that? that that's going to make them even more confused than if, they didn't, if I didn't have a name to tell them. Um, I could just say, this is my God that I serve. But now I have to tell them, I am that I am sent me. Why did God do that? Because he's revealing himself. Because he wants us to know who he is. And because God is staking a claim. If you know the context of the Exodus, God is uh, in judgment on Egypt and in judgment on the gods of Egypt. And so there's this God of the Nile, and there's this God of fertility, and there's this God of agriculture, right? And God is saying, I am. You, you don't append me to some element of your life. I'm not just like, you know, some, some little demigod that hangs out over here, and if you want to have a relationship with me, you can. He's saying, I exist I, ju- I just am. I'm before all things, right? I'm, I'm inscrutable. I'm mysterious. I'm inaccessible. You're lucky I'm telling you this right now and not zapping you with lightning. So the Lord is, is merciful and gracious, and he reveals himself to us. And he sort of reveals this, uh, maybe you could call it eternality, just he is his own source, right? There's no one who creates God. God doesn't have a start. He doesn't have an origin where he comes from. He doesn't have a domain where he just kind of hangs out in. Um, he is the Lord of all. He is this God. And so he tells us that. But the second significance of God's name in the Old Testament is sort of as reputation, okay? Um, when you're building a name for yourself, we kind of know what that means now. We use that. We still use that idiom making a name for yourself. Something like reputation. Something like um, uh, who, who you are and what you're capable of. In Psalm 29, um, it starts off and it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. So there's something about the name of the Lord that we can give it glory, right? As part of this economy of prayer. What do we glorify? We glorify the name of the Lord. He is able to save. He is able to do these things. In fact, he is preeminent. He's the most high. And so we, we glorify him. And we, we, we look at 
the good things that happen. We look at the, the great salvation that we receive, and we say, who could do this? How could this happen? We ascribe it to the name of the Lord. We ascribe it to the Lord. He's the one who can do this kind of thing. And then the third significance there in, in the Old Testament is as his presence. Like I mentioned, with the temple, and Solomon builds it, and as uh, Solomon is sort of praying this dedicatory prayer, Um, He says, may your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, the Lord said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. So God wants to emphasize that he's transcendent. He wants to emphasize he doesn't have a limit. He wants to emphasize that he doesn't live in a house. He's not a little idol like the other gods. But he wants fellowship. He does want us to know him. He does want us to rely on him. Um, he's the one who can help us. So he wants us to ask for that help. And so he says, I'll put my name there. That means there's some special presence. There's some special significance. When you call on my name, when you recognize my name, I will deliver you. I will help you. And so that's sort of the significance there. In, in Malachi, to just kind of sum it up, in Malachi 1 it says this, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So his presence, his name is supposed to become comprehensive. It's supposed to become universal. All peoples, not just Abraham, not just David, not just Moses, not just the people of Israel, everyone. Um, And Malachi, he's one of these these prophets who's sort of trying to open up this salvation and this great God to everyone, to the human race. And it's from these prophets that the New Testament then starts quoting and says, oh, this calling on the name that Abraham did, everyone is supposed to do. Everyone is supposed to do. And that's, that's sort of the big mystery, that's sort of the big revelation that happens with the New Testament and Pentecost and those kind of things. Okay, I think that's enough context. I think that's enough background. Now we have the three names God gives Jesus. The first is Jesus. <laughs> okay, so again, God is gracious to us. You know, those type A, um, what is it, left brain people. We want to know the etymology can you just tell us the name? What does it mean? What is it? Jesus gets this name, Jesus. That's how we say it in English. Um, and it comes from this word for salvation. It literally is just salvation. Um, it's very interesting uh, when this, this name is given. Um, it says that he will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this is where we start to see Um, salvation defined in the way that we know it as Christians, in the way that we know it as New Testament believers. Now the salvation isn't just from the lion or or the monster. It isn't just from a bad harvest or the evildoer. Now the salvation is starting to be this this cosmic thing from our sins. Wait, how can anyone save us from our sins? It must be God. It must be God who can account, who can... um, remove from us the consequences and the penalties of our sins. It can remove from us even the agency and the doing of our our sins. And so um, salvation is tied in there. In the Old Testament, salvation was always tied with the name of the Lord. And so, of course, Jesus is named Jesus, salvation. The second name that God gives Jesus 
is this name above all names, okay? Um, I was so glad that we went through that sermon series on Philippians because I keep coming back to it over and over as regarding prayer. Um, and so it was interesting to come back to, to this part of it, um, talking about the name. It says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, this exaltation, this glorification, again, it's not a vain thing. It's not, it's not some weird uh, vanity that God wants. God wants to exalt his name. He wants to exalt Jesus because that's how you can be saved. That's how you can be brought back into relationship with God. And with Jesus accomplishing what he does on the cross and his resurrection and ascension and and the gospel, God can exalt him and say, here is the salvation I have won for you. There's a lot going on here, but I think that's one thing that's happening here. Jesus sort of earns this name that is above every name. God has always had that name has always had the most high name, has had that one name of the the rescuer, the one who saves, the savior. Um, But now Jesus has shown in his process of obedience and humility that in every way he has earned and is worthy of this high name, this big name. And so Jesus and earning this name is an answer to a big question that's in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament question was, Will God do what he said he was going to do? We kind of sang a song about it, right? Whatever God says, he, he does. That's an amazing thing. It's not this 50-50 encore thing with God. I don't know. We invoked God. We did the right sacrifice. We called on him. Maybe he'll help us. Maybe he won't. The Old Testament is a story of God's faithfulness and God showing up and doing what he said he was going to do. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. King David, I'm going to make a house for you and a kingdom for you that will never end. He does those things. And so this is sort of the ultimate instance of that. Jesus shows up and ministers and and suffers and dies and is resurrected, proving that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. These things that are prophesied, he doesn't abandon the human race. In fact, he redeems it. And that redemption is seen in Jesus Christ. And what's even interesting to me, this is a whole, um, just as I was researching this, I'm not going to go too much into it, but in a certain sense, Jesus becomes the true temple. Now the name of God, the name of the Lord, rests on Jesus. We don't have to pray to a physical location. Uh, We don't have to make pilgrimage to to some place. Um, Now we pray to Jesus. We pray towards Jesus. Um, The name rests there. Okay, the last name that God gives Jesus, this is where I wanted to be a little bit edgy, okay? Um, And I wanted to end it up in the book of Revelation. The name that God gives Jesus is the name written only he knows. This is written in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And in fact, I could read the whole passage. It's uh, in Revelation 19, it's a, it gives many names for Jesus. It calls him the Word of God. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's faithful and true. But 
written on him is a name no one knows but himself. Okay, so this, again, is where God is um, answering a question with a a mystical, transcendent, (laughs) inscrutable answer. What does this mean? I don't know exactly what this means, but the way I'm taking it here is Jesus is now fully uh, known and manifested as God, as divine. So he is born as a baby, and he's given a name by human parents, Jesus. He humbles himself to obedience and death on the cross, and he's given this name which is above every name by God the Father. And now, in Revelation 19, he's fully revealed and fully known as God himself, and so, as God, he has a name only he knows. It doesn't specify, so maybe it's, it's a name bestowed by the Trinity, right? It doesn't say the Father writes a name on him that only he knows, or um, the Son, so I don't want to push it too far. But I do want to say it's a name that God gives Jesus, this name written on him that no one knows. And it points to his power, to his authority, which is what the name is all about. He has this ability to do what he says he's going to do, this ability of God to save you from your sins, to be resurrected, to have the power of eternal life. And we see that in Revelation. So, you might be asking, so what? Why is Jesus' name important? Well, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is the name that we call upon. We should be known as the people who call upon the name of the Lord. That hasn't changed. What has changed is more and more evidence that God can do what he says, that God is going to come through on his covenant and his promise. But I I want us to realize, too, that calling on the name of the Lord isn't just something that you do once when you're getting saved at the prayer meeting and you come up to the altar and, and and you cry and you say, I'm asking Jesus into my heart. And then you never call upon the name of the Lord again. Calling upon the name of the Lord is something that should characterize us. We should be, people who aren't believers, who aren't followers of Jesus should be like, I don't know about those people, but they keep calling on the name of the Lord. They're they're the people who call on the name of the Lord. They They keep expecting their Lord to provide for them and to save them from their days of trouble. That's who they are. That's what they do. And I think that should be true of us. When I was growing up, um, sort of trying to repent and move away from my arrogance and move away from my self-sufficiency, um, something that God showed me is that the thing that we do at salvation, I do think there is probably this moment of salvation. There is this moment of repentance where the momentum of your life changes. You're going away from God, and then you realize you have a revelation of God, you know God, you understand God, and you're like, I believe. I tr- that's true. What God said, he can do it. And there's this moment. I think there is that. But it shouldn't end there. That shouldn't be it. What happens in that moment, grace, salvation, confession of sin, um, real glorification and, and praising of God, um, those things that happen in that moment should be happening consistently, should characterize our life. Repentance should characterize our life, but also the system that is mentioned in Psalm 50. Call on me in the day of trouble. 
I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. We should be doing that. And this, there's this amazing thing that happens. That's why I call it sort of an economy of prayer. There's this amazing thing that happens when we call on the name of the Lord, other people hear it. When I first came to Korea, I was sort of observing and trying to learn um, how uh, Koreans worshipped. And I got to sit in many worship services. And there's this really cool thing that Koreans do when they're praying. Um, there's uh, sort of a moment. Maybe it's, it's just... Uh, the collective, maybe the, the pastor even sort of announces it from the front, um, but to begin a, a time of prayer, they'll cry out the name of the Lord. They'll cry out Jesus. And when they cry out, it's a crying out. It's an actual crying out. And that's how they begin their, their time of prayer. They begin their prayer by calling on the name of the Lord. It's so biblical, so scriptural. Um, when they do that, other people here. Okay, so there's this other weird finickiness that, you know, I I don't like rules, I don't like ritual, I want to be cool and spontaneous and authentic. Um, There's also this other thing that, you know, just in my culture and Christianity, where I I don't want other people to to sort of notice my relationship with God. It's supposed to be intimate and authentic, right? I don't want to show off and, and, and have other people listening in to my relationship with God. But I think this part of it we're supposed to. I think the Koreans have it really right on this. Um, people need to hear that name. They need to hear people calling on that name. And if we can do that, don't. I see people getting nervous. I'm not going to make you do it right now. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll do it at some prayer meeting um, later on. We're not going to do it right now. We don't have to do it right now. But people need to hear that name. Believers need to be calling on that name. If you're inside the religion, if you you are walking with the Lord, it hasn't changed for you. You're still calling upon the name. People who aren't saved, who aren't believing, who aren't following yet, they need to see that name glorified. They need to see that name exalted. And so we need to to glorify it. We need to, to raise it up. So let's pray.